This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. On his last day working at the Everglades Foundation after nearly 17 years, Tom Van Lint posted a tweet that took a jab at his bosses. We'll soon work with the friends of the Everglades who put facts over politics. Van Lint had been a chief scientist at the foundation, a power player in Florida conservation politics, with billionaires on its board of directors. But after years of growing more and more frustrated with the way the foundation worked and being sidelined as its top science expert, in 2022, Van Lint decided to quit and go work with friends. Friends was the much smaller, scrappier group founded by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, one of the biggest champions for saving the Everglades. With a legacy of leadership, including Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, Juanita Green, Mega Herchala, and now Eve Samples, I trust them. That little tweet would bring a world of trouble for the serious and normally soft-spoken scientists. Okay, let me make sure I understand. First of all, we've already established you had friction with Eric Eichenberg, correct? Yes. This is Van Lint being cross-examined by attorney George Piedra in a virtual courtroom 15 months after he quit and tweeted that zinger. Eric Eichenberg is the CEO of the Everglades Foundation. Told you he didn't trust you, correct? I don't remember him saying his exact words. Objection mischaracterizes the testimony. Overruled. You're listening to Bright Lit Place, a podcast about the fight over land, water, and willpower in the effort to save the Everglades. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. This podcast is distributed by the NPR Network and supported by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. We ended our last episode after learning that thousands of acres of treatment marshes still aren't getting water clean enough to send into the Everglades to save it. Now, we want to look at something more fundamental, science versus politics. Do you believe, do you believe that the Everglades Foundation puts politics over science? You're under oath. Um. Van Lent was an infrequent tweeter. He has just a couple of hundred followers. But that tweet got a lot of attention. Two months later, the foundation sued him, claiming he stole trade secrets. He's now facing fines, huge legal bills, and maybe even a year in jail. Politics was always going to play a huge role in restoration. For two decades, politicians have bragged about it being a bipartisan effort. And for Florida Republicans, it's been safe, solid ground, a place to get some conservation cred without tangling with the faction of their party that denies the science behind climate change or fighting COVID. But now, this fight between a well-regarded scientist and the skilled political strategist he worked for pulls back the curtain on just how much politics has shaped the massive and very much behind-schedule plan to restore the Everglades. Scientists I talked to also say this legal battle could have a serious chilling effect. Right after the foundation filed the lawsuit against Van Lint, I called a half-dozen Everglades scientists asking if they'd talk about it. 
They were either too worried about losing funding for students provided by the foundation or scared of running afoul of Eichenberg. Before answering that last question, Do you believe that the Everglades Foundation puts politics over science? Um. Van Lent paused for 12 long seconds. Yes, and I can uh, give you specific examples. I don't need examples. I just Can needed I, an please answer please to that explain, question. Uh, That's not, examples uh, is Mr. not Raymond, an explanation. Mr. Raymond, no. He can, the Dr. Van Lent is entitled to explain his answer, and I've allowed him to do that each and every question, every time. However, going off on tangents as to the sample has nothing to do with it. So the objection okay. is sustained. So, so when you sent that tweet, and when you sent that tweet, you believed that the Everglades Foundation put politics over science, correct? Uh, yes, and for a reason. Okay, so when you put out a tweet that says you're going to go work for an organization that puts science over politics, um, you are surprised that anybody would interpret that as uh, an attack on the organization that you are leaving. On the one side of the fight is Eichenberg, who ran his first Republican congressional campaign at 23. He's still usually in khakis and a button-down, running restoration like a political campaign. The only way that Everglades restoration is successful is for the political side of the House to effectively work with us. Eichenberg is hugely responsible for keeping restoration in the Republican playbook as head of the foundation for the last decade. You know, go back to the 90s, right? Go back to the Lawton Childs days, uh, Estes Whitfield with uh, Bob Graham. All of this was laid out, and then it was layered on top of a political process. You have to bring politicians and a political process along the way, or else you're not going to be successful. You're not going to be successful. Other environmental nonprofits also concede Eichenberg is one of the rare conservation lobbyists Republican politicians listen to. We have Eric Eichenberg. Where's Eric? Governor Ron DeSantis made Eichenberg part of his transition team after he won in 2018. Um, good morning. Um, I want to uh, take us back to January the 8th, 2019, just after high noon, when the governor made it very clear that we were not going to allow foot draggers to stand in our way. On the other is Van Lent, a double major in civil engineering and French literature. He runs marathons, reads Icelandic poetry, and paddles through the remotest part of the Everglades for a week at a time. It's the place he spent his whole career trying to protect. After Van Lent quit, the foundation filed a rare sealed complaint in Miami Circuit Court saying Van Lent waged a secret campaign of theft and destruction. Even before Van Lent had seen the lawsuit, a judge issued an injunction ordering him to stop downloading and deleting any information and not to talk about the foundation's, quote, trade secrets. It's your testimony that you downloaded an entire folder titled Models 
from the science team on February 22nd, 2022 at 10.30 a.m. because you were looking for a particular paper. The foundation had already hired attorneys from three different firms, including corporate litigators in California and the managing partner from a Miami firm. Billable hours for those kinds of attorneys easily start at $800 an hour. The foundation paid a computer technician $19,000 to examine Van Lint's computers and hard drives. Van Lint, meanwhile, is being represented by an attorney who founded a small firm in Tallahassee where Van Lint now lives. He mostly handles real estate deals, like closings and resolving title disputes. Do you recall being asked that question? No, I do not recall being asked that specific question. A year after the injunction, things escalated. The foundation complained Van Lint continued to delete and download items on his personal computer. By this point, Van Lint was facing mounting legal bills and the risk of having to pay the foundation's legal fees, too. So he was pretty stressed. Sitting in the virtual courtroom, George Piedra, the foundation's attorney, grilled him about the computer folders and hard drives and what he did with thousands of files on numerous dates. It was hard to keep track. Your answer at the time was, I was looking for information that would help with the project I was working on for Dr. Yogesh Kari. Do you see that? Van Lynn asked to see the folders they were talking about. I do not recall giving those answers, but if that's, yeah. uh, understand this is the record. And does this refresh your recollection as to no, whether you... No, it does not. De- I, Excuse I don't me, interrupt me, sir. I wasn't done with my question. Okay, sorry. Does this refresh your recollection as to whether you downloaded an entire folder titled Models from the science team on February 22nd, 2022 at 10.30 a.m.? No, it does not. Okay. Again, to have my memory refreshed, I would need to see the contents of that folder, Models. This went on for hours. Sir, it's a yes, no. It's a yes, no. Yes or no. It's a yes or no, sir. There's no belief. I mean, these. it's a yes, no, Judge. Again and again, Van Lint insisted he'd simply tried to delete and organize redundant files and remove personal information, like emails, from his wife. Even the foundation's chief operating officer testified that she had no idea what was in the missing files. Van Lint swears, literally, that they were copies of things he'd already returned. It was more about making sure or attempting to stop me from going to any other organization and adding the science voice to that organization. It was about maintaining their, what they see as their monopoly in the environmental community. Uh, it, It was that tweet, it was a reaction to that tweet saying, yeah, they do, they prioritized Uh, politics above science. After all these years, he says it's a pretty ironic end to his legacy. One of the reasons they said they recruited me initially some 17 years ago was because I was known for just speaking what I thought and um, would speak truth to power. (laughs) And they, they, at the time, admired that. For Van Lint, the stakes are enormous. It's not just his reputation he risked losing. The foundation demanded access not just to work files, 
but his family's financial and health records. He could go broke trying to pay legal fees. It's hard to know exactly why this fight got so out of hand. Eichenberg says it's simple. Van Lent stole foundation work product. That included the file called models, which are basically computer calculations that let you see how building something, like a reservoir on cane fields, will or won't change water levels miles away at the tip of Florida. But Eichenberg won't specifically say what was taken. When I ask people who should know what the fight is about, like Kirk Fordham and Rock Salt, they say they're also mystified. A scientist who called me thought it had to do more with egos and then warned me to be careful about offending the foundation. I love Tom Van Lent. Kirk Fordham was the director of the foundation before Eichenberg. He started two years after Van Lent was hired. I relied on him to teach me everything I knew about uh, the science, and he was remarkably good at distilling complicated science into layman's terms when we had to go before the Water Management District Board or to Tallahassee or Washington. He still serves on the Everglades Trust. That's the foundation's lobbying arm. But he says he hasn't talked to any of his old colleagues about the dispute. Like a lot of others I asked right after the lawsuit was filed, he said the same thing. Van Lent knows Everglades hydrology better than anyone. But Fordham didn't want to talk about the details. I, I, I mean, I love all the people involved, and um, I don't know why this had to unfold the way it did. The fight between Van Lint and Eichenberg is rooted in the first big Everglades project to come along in years, a reservoir Eichenberg helped push through. It's now being championed by the governor as a turning point in restoration. Because uh, we have a lot of great Everglades projects, but really the crown jewel is this EAA reservoir project. And you often hear the foundation finally... also call it the crown jewel. This project, this project is the crown jewel. This project is the linchpin for America's Everglades. The reservoir project is being planned on old sugarcane fields south of Lake Okeechobee, not far from the stormwater treatment marshes we visited in Episode 3. Check out our website, brightlitplace.org, to see more photos and maps of the treatment marshes and other places in the Everglades. The reservoir is supposed to accomplish two of the main goals for restoration, to store and clean water that could help reduce pollution flowing from the lake down the St. Lucie and Caloosahatchee rivers. But as the project began making its way through the legislature, lawmakers and sugar lobbyists began tinkering with it. By the time they were done, what was going to be a 60,000-acre reservoir was being squeezed onto land a third of that size. No sugarcane fields would be sacrificed. And Van Lint started to worry that it wouldn't actually work. Things got more tense after the smaller reservoir was approved in 2017, and lawmakers ordered staff at the South Florida Water Management District to fast-track it. When Van Lint and other foundation scientists took a closer look, they found the reservoir might actually increase phosphorus pollution. They said treatment marshes included in the project needed to double in size. So they set up a meeting with the district staff to talk about their findings. But at that meeting, Van Lint says his bosses turned on their own scientists. The Everglades Foundation leadership joined the water management district in attacking us. And after that meeting, we came back and did a discussion, and I was pretty angry with Eric. He says that was a breaking point. 
You know, if, if you disagree with your science department, you can't just simply change the facts. That was the beginning of the end. That's when Eric was very clear that uh, the role of science was to support whatever they decided to do. During the trial, the foundation's chief operating officer said colleagues were still talking about the fight between Van Lint and Eichenberg just after the meeting years later. Eichenberg didn't want to talk about it. The attorney for the foundation said to Van Lint during the cross, there was friction between you and Eric Eichenberg. What was it? I'm not going to talk about employee employee issue. I mean, this this is. I mean, this I'll is, tell you what he told me, uh, which is that you wanted him to get behind the reservoir, and he wasn't going to do it. <laughs> the, the 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 smaller reservoir. Well, he he can tell you what he wants to, but all I know is I followed what my board and what the decision was at the time, because again. He made statements and papers that said you can build this on a smaller footprint. More after the break. This episode's sponsor is PWC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. So, so I'm going to turn this on. Okay. Okay. But, and I just wanted to... Testing. Yes. One, yeah. two, one, two. When what I may do... Well, yeah, my arm will get tired, but that's good. Welcome back to Bright Lit Place, a podcast from WLRN News, distributed by the NPR Network. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. Did you get these out for me, or do you always have these on your desk? No, no, I, I brought them out so I could refresh my memory. Um, Sitting in his office, Eichenberg searched through some papers he'd pulled in advance of our interview. I'm organize myself here, but, um, Shoot. Ah, it's even earlier. In the pile was a report Van Lint wrote in August 2016. That was two years before the Water Management District drew up final plans for the reservoir. This was his smoking gun. 
At the time, sugar growers wanted lawmakers to build a reservoir north of the lake, not south of it, on their land. Van Lint says the paper was intended to convince then-Governor Rick Scott that a southern reservoir would do more to stop the polluted discharges and get more water into the Everglades. He says he wasn't arguing for a deeper reservoir on less land. What he's saying basically is you were saying, I don't care what your science shows. No, no, I don't think so. And listen, he was found 11 times during that court proceeding to not be credible. And, you know, it's unfortunate what happened, but this this issue is based on an employee left and destroyed, took with him and then destroyed hundreds of thousands of documents. He was found in contempt by a court. um, And that's that's all I'm going to say. I guess just from the step back, I don't understand what was taken. I mean, I don't I don't what what. What would the theft be, and what was missing? There's no, no, it didn't come out in the hearing, and it wasn't listed in any court papers. What exactly was missing? It just said file. So he, you can't, you know, we can't litigate this over a, over an interview because the court has ruled. The court has ruled, and the ruling, the 25 pages or the 23 pages, speak for themselves. And I'm going to leave it at that. All right. I mean, you work with the guy for a decade. And, I mean, his career's, you know, he's six-digit legal bill. Um, I mean, he's he, he's going to face potential financial ruin, maybe jail time. It just seems like, and I'm not the only one who thought, wow, that's that seems harsh. I mean, other people wonder why, you know, go after him so hard. It's, uh, I, think, I think the court record speaks for itself. Okay. Remember, that record doesn't ever identify what was taken. But Eichenberg doesn't dispute Van Lin's claim that he believes politics is what advances restoration. You work within a political reality, and if compromise... Why is compromise considered a four-letter word by some? You know, under, under that... Under that Pollyannic view, you're never going to get anything. And there are groups that feel that you shouldn't compromise, you should hold strong, you're, you're never right, you're never wrong, you know, they, they just don't give in or don't compromise. So there's a couple of things going on here. The first thing to remember is that building a 60,000-acre reservoir south of the lake had been in the original Comprehensive Restoration Plan. It was even authorized as one of the very first projects in 2000 because storage was such a critical piece of restoration. In the dry season, it could send water south to help recharge freshwater aquifers and help keep saltwater out. That water would also help keep peat soils in the Everglades healthy to stop the land from sinking. Climate change is already making both problems worse. But storing water is no good for southern marshes unless you can clean it. You can see photographs and maps showing how the Everglades has dramatically changed over the years on our website, brightlitplace.org. Storage was also needed to fix another problem. When the Everglades was re-plumbed for flood control and development, the lake was connected to the Caloosahatchee River, which flows into the Gulf of Mexico, and the St. Lucie Estuary, which drains into the Atlantic. As the lake grew more and more polluted over the years and coastal areas grew more and more developed, the lake water combined with runoff into the rivers to supercharge algae blooms. 
When this current reservoir plan came up in 2016, algae was choking the St. Lucie River. It even made national news on the Today Show. Closer to home, a state of emergency in Florida to tell you about. And this is the cause, a massive invasion of toxic algae. It's blanketing some beaches. And it wasn't the first time. Toxic smelly mats of slime floated down the river, headed toward the homes of the super-rich on Hobe Sound and Jupiter Island. Dogs were dying. Just three years earlier, people had lived through another lost summer when algae drove away tourists. Here's NBC News reporting. Today, protesters blaming state and federal officials for not doing enough to stop pollution on Lake Okeechobee. These guys need to get off their keisters and get this done. So this time, they were furious. That's when the reservoir resurfaced as a potential solution. It was supposed to hold some of that polluted water instead of sending it to the coast. And finally, the reservoir was a way to show that restoration was actually working. By the time Eichenberg came to the foundation in 2012, restoration needed momentum. Congress still wasn't authorizing any projects, and there was a push to get something, something big, done. Van Lent says the Corps, the district, and a bunch of stakeholders came up with the idea of bundling some projects under a new fast-track schedule. Instead of taking five or more years just to plan stuff, the Corps would get it done in three years. Then comes this summer of slime. And this is where the politics swings into action. We were starting to see perennial crises. And Rahm Emanuel made it clear, you never let a good crisis go to waste. Remember, Eichenberg, like Emanuel, a former White House chief of staff and Chicago mayor, is a veteran of political campaigns. Politicians, I've been around them enough, they, they almost, they get consumed by the negativity around something. And they, they, they tell their staff, we got to get out of this. we got to figure out a way to turn the tide. we got to come up with an alternative. we got to have a press conference to tell them we're doing something else, right? So how do you help the politician... Eichenberg says he met repeatedly with Joe Negron, the state senator for communities around the St. Lucie, to convince him to push for the 60,000-acre reservoir and treatment marshes the plan originally called for. Negron also happened to be the incoming president of Florida's Senate. But again, once the reservoir started getting passed around by politicians and sugar lobbyists, it started shrinking. That smaller footprint meant the reservoir would need to be deeper to hold enough water. But deeper water is harder to clean. The Army Corps also worried this new reservoir plan wouldn't do much to help Florida Bay. And they weren't the only ones complaining. The Department of Interior complained. The Everglades Coalition, which is made up of 62 environmental groups, also opposed it. And then there's Van Lint the foundation's own scientist, stubbornly refusing to back the compromise for a smaller reservoir that his boss was selling to lawmakers. As the years have gone by and Florida gets more crowded, politicians have increasingly expected the Everglades to do more with less. When Van Lint started working at the Water Management District out of college in the early 1980s, one of his first big assignments was kind of legendary. The director said, got a call from uh, the governor, who was Bob Graham at the time, and he wants us to do something about the Everglades, helping out the Everglades. He promised some old lady he'd do something, and uh, so what can we do? 
to satisfy the governor. The old lady was Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. She was in her 90s then and still a force in Everglades politics. At the time, there was a massive canal diverting water that once flowed across marshes into the southern Everglades and Florida Bay. I was just a fly in the wall, so I, had, I was the most junior person in the room. And um, the decision was to, there's a, the C-111 canal right where it crosses U.S. 1 going into the Florida Keys at the time just had piles of dirt on both sides. And the proposal was to go and put some gaps in those piles of dirt so water could flow out of the canal into the park, Everglades National Park Panhandle. And so we have an environmental benefit and help flood control. Win-win. So the district engineers come up with a plan, and Graham flies Stoneman Douglas out to the canal to show her what they intend to do. Flew her out to the canal and levee, and everyone gave her the pitch on what we're doing here. And when it was all done, the governor turned to Marjorie and said, so what do you think? And she said, not good enough, Bob. Turned around, got back in the helicopter. That's all she said. It was after that trip that Graham announced he was going to save the Everglades. When she wrote River of Grass, Stoneman Douglas was an avid defender of science, and she never wavered from getting the water right, even 40 years after she published River of Grass. Here's what she said when a reporter asked in the 1980s if she was growing frustrated with the slow pace of restoration. This is from a 1984 interview that's part of the Wolfson Archive at Miami-Dade College. Why should you be frustrated if it's something you want to do? Why don't you go? Why would you be frustrated? You're making progress all the time. Why would you be frustrated? What difference how, if it takes 20 years? What, what does it matter? It's a great big project. Americans are so impatient. Why should it all be done in one or two years? If it takes 20 years, we got 20 years. Of course, we don't have 20 years to spare now. Climate change has reset the timeline. But Van Lent says the attitude of get it done right, not just fast, was starting to reshape environmental thinking back then. And that's beginning of a sea change. So I got involved in this because early on we had computer models that would develop to predict water supply needs for South Florida. And it was, you know, we can use these models for other things, like looking at uh, environmental restoration projects and things like that. So I immediately got involved and was helping set up the tools that we used to do all of the analysis for SERP. He'd figured out that modeling used to design water supply and flood control could also be used to predict water flow and revive habitat for wildlife. Like, just how much water do you need to make it deep enough for alligators to nest or wading birds to forage? That kind of modeling allowed restoration to become much more precise. What I loved to do, to do it wasn't about restoration. It was like, I just want to do these calculations and see, the cause, and see the cause and effect and look at conditions and talk with ecologists about, like, snail kites. They eat snails. Well, what conditions are best to, for apple snails? And I just love that. Remember, it was Van Lint who was the main architect of the National Park Report that pushed officials to change the 2000 plan because the park didn't get the water it needed until nearly the end of restoration. The Corps was not happy with the findings. 
the general view of the core is that every core project was like a Christmas tree. You give presents to everybody, and then if you get enough people who get presents, then you have enough support to get it passed in Congress. And their complaint to us was, you're just complaining because you didn't get a big enough present. And I was just like, I don't see a big difference in alligator nesting and these all these things that we had kind of come to expect. We want to see birds. We want alligators. So that's Van Lint, the engineer's engineer who falls in love with the Everglades and spends his career trying to figure out how much water a snail needs. Then there's Eric Eichenberg, the Everglades Foundation CEO, also passionate about the Everglades, but a strategist with politics in his blood. I think the moment was in 11th grade, my junior year in high school. Eichenberg moved to Coral Springs from Long Island in high school and got hooked on politics in a government class. Politics also ran in the family. His mother served as Broward County's Republican committee woman. His father co-founded the Coral Springs Republican Club. Eichenberg went to college in Washington, D.C. and interned in congressional offices every summer. When he graduated, he took a job doing opposition research for the Republican Party in Tallahassee. But his big break came in 2006 after an unusually bad election for Florida Republicans. The only Republican who won that night was Charlie Crist as governor. By then, Eichenberg had made some important connections, including Crist's campaign chief. And he called that night and said, listen, if you want to come back, well, let's talk about the Crist administration. Eichenberg becomes Crist's deputy chief of staff and lands in the middle of what would become Crist Everglades' moonshot, the deal to buy out U.S. sugar. In the fall of 2007, Chris' chief of staff calls Eichenberg and tells him to walk down the street to the offices of one of Tallahassee's most connected lobbying firms. And I don't know if he remember if he said it was about the sugar industry or not, but I, I get up and I walk the eight blocks from the building down to the Smith-Ballard offices. Two political heavyweights meet him at the door. Max Stepanovich, a former chief of staff for a Republican governor, now working for the firm, and one of the firm's partners, Brian Ballard, who's helped broker the deal. Crist was a Republican back then and supported by both men. And they took me up to the second floor of this building, and we sat at a table, and they they laid out all these maps of Florida, and in particular, Lake Okeechobee down to Florida Bay, and even more specifically, Everglades Agricultural Area. They say they have an offer. U.S. Sugar wants to sell about 180,000 acres to Florida. The sugar deal was huge, with the power to redefine restoration. There would be both plenty of land for storing and cleaning water, and less pollution, with cane fields taken out of production. But it didn't work. The deal fell apart over criticism that sugar-friendly appraisers inflated the price of the land just as the recession was starting to hammer Florida. Some of the land was also in the wrong place, so the state would have to negotiate trades with other farmers. Soon after, Eichenberg became a lobbyist himself. I was um, Wawa's first lobbyist in Florida when they, when they came when they came back in 2010, along with some other clients. But there was um, there was something was missing, you know, because I enjoyed 
I was a chief of staff to senior members of Congress, to the governor of Florida, to leave that day and, you know, it's not getting your calls returned or not hearing from folks. It, it's a quick, abrupt end uh, when you leave those type of positions. Going to work for the foundation put Eichenberg back at the center of the political game. You cannot be a politician in Florida without dealing with all its environmental problems. And the foundation had a powerful board. It was founded by billionaire investor Paul Tudor Jones and his fishing buddy, George Barley. In the years ahead, Eichenberg would help transform how environmental advocacy works in Florida. What generation is going to stop getting rolled? I was compelled by the court under threat of jail to turn over all of my personal items to the Glades Foundation. That's next. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. Welcome back to Bright Lit Place, a podcast from WLRN News, distributed by the NPR Network. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. When he started at the Everglades Foundation, Eric Eigenberg says one of the first things he did was hire lobbyists. Having come from a lobbying shop and having witnessed lobbyists over the years, the view was you have to, it's about relationships, it's about education, it's about making sure people understand what's what, what what's important here. So we made a decision in 2013 that we were going to hire lobbyists. That was unusual for an environmental advocacy nonprofit. Audubon, Florida had just six people registered to lobby, and most were in-house staff in 2013. A nonprofit co-founded by Bob Graham had just two. Sierra Club had one. When Eichenberg took over the foundation in 2012, he hired 18 but they were still easily outnumbered by the sugar industry, which usually had twice as many. The foundation's fundraising took off, too. Contributions jumped from $3.8 million the year Eichenberg was hired to nearly $29 million in 2022. 
Eichenberg also makes more than three times as much as the bosses at other Florida environmental nonprofits. At the time he took over, the state's conservation efforts were also about to get a lot more money. In 2014, frustrated Florida voters overwhelmingly passed an amendment that would take a third of taxes from real estate transactions across the state to buy and conserve land for 20 years. It added up to about a $23 billion trust fund. That's nearly the total price tag for comprehensive restoration and something Everglades advocates hoped would jumpstart restoration work. There was still a pending option from the Chris deal for the state to buy 46,000 acres of sugar fields, enough land for a reservoir. That option was set to expire in 2015. Eichenberg says the plan was to tap into the trust fund money to pay for the land. But there was a new governor by now, the future U.S. Senator Rick Scott. They signed, we signed. The deal was struck. All you had to do was tell them we're going to execute it. Jimmy Buffett flies to Tallahassee. We want to to preserve our water. Plays 45 minutes on the steps of the old Capitol. And we want to save our swamp. And we want to have a future for our children in Florida like we have lived so far. Let's change some latitudes and let's change some attitudes. Every legislator was there watching them sing, and we were urging that that land be purchased, 46,000 acres. And uh, Rick Scott and the Florida legislature took the advice of U.S. Sugar to not execute the option. And this wasn't even debatable because, again, it was negotiated and both parties had signed on the dotted line. Eichenberg is still mad about it. It was a big loss to his sweetest enemy. You knew the money was there. You had an option to buy land, 46,000 acres, and Sugar was successful in convincing legislative leaders, including the governor, not to do it. After the deal was terminated, a drought hit Florida Bay and killed about 60,000 acres of seagrass. That estuary gets completely flipped on its head, and it was zombie grass floating on the surface of the water because we weren't getting fresh water flowing through the Everglades. And that's when uh, all heck broke loose. This was another crisis Eichenberg wasn't going to let go to waste. He helped secure $200 million a year from the trust fund to use for the Everglades, guaranteed money. Then in 2016, a heavy rainy season hit. The Army Corps needed to lower the lake, so it started flushing water into the St. Lucie estuary. By June, the estuary was filling up with toxic algae. So that's when Eichenberg says he started pushing Senate President Joe Negron to get a reservoir passed. And Negron is all in. All the toxic blue-green algae is in his district, killing businesses, potentially making his constituents sick, and turning the water near million-dollar homes into goopy dead zones. Negron holds a press conference in Stewart and says he's going to build that 60,000-acre reservoir. And uh, all the evidence that I see confirms uh, what I'm here to announce today. We must buy land south. That is the plan Van Lent supported, along with all the other environmental groups. So in the upcoming legislative session, uh, I'm going to propose that the state purchase 60,000 acres of land south of the lake 
to construct a reservoir to store water. But then toward the end of the session, Eichenberg gets summoned to Tallahassee. Turns out those 18 lobbyists weren't enough. It was maybe a Friday or Saturday. I get a phone call and says, you got to be in Tallahassee Sunday night. Uh, flew up and walk into the Senate President's office with Eric Draper, who was running Audubon, Florida at the time. It was a Sunday. And we sit down at a table similar to the one we're at. And it was Joe Negron, Jack Ladvala, who was the appropriations chairman at the time, and then sugar representatives. And I'll never forget it. Uh, it was not a discussion. We were there to hear what the final deal was going to be. And it was presented as a take it or leave it. And when you were told you're not going to get the $60,000, you are going to have to use state-owned land, why not push back harder? It would have been over. And, yeah, we could have pushed back. We could have walked that plank and made a big fuss over it, and then we would have gotten nothing. So what, what is the political strategy? You know, when you have something like this where now that reservoir, which was you take what you get, now it's the crown jewel. Like It may not have been a 70-yard touchdown, but, you know, we were trying to move the ball down the field. Eichenberg says that's what you do in politics. There's a lot at stake here. People don't appreciate the fact that it's in our own backyard and it's been destroyed. We have a third of it left. So at I some point... I would one-fifth. Okay, <laughs> well, one-fifth. Fine, there's one-fifth of it left. But what, what generation is going to stop getting rolled all the time? Why, why are we going to allow the Everglades to get rolled all the time? And it's almost like if if you approach me in these hot days of July and I'm desperate for water and you reach out and you hand me a bottle of water, it's like, I'm going to say to you, you know what, Jenny, I don't want the bottle. I'm waiting for the gallon. That was the issue that we were dealing with in 2017 is yes. Do we want 60,000 no, acres? I, I, I get that. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering like it's the politics where, it may not be what you want, but you still have to have a press conference with the governor saying this is a great thing. And what's the alternative of that? You, um, you're dealing with men and women who, are, um, who have large egos. They're constantly uh, in front of uh, voters. Um, voters also, what have you done for me lately? Um, it is a, a very fluid system politically. That handling of politicians also has to do with how the foundation manages itself. The more it controls the messaging and becomes the brand ambassador for the Everglades, the more power it wields. Environmentalists who disagree with the foundation have told me it's better to have somebody at the table rather than no one. But some say the foundation's political meddling goes too far. If you don't act in a certain way, Chris Costello is an organizing manager for the Sierra Club. And take a particular policy position that the foundation can say, we're going to cut you off, which of course they can. She says when Sierra was getting money from the foundation, they were asked not to criticize Rick Scott. Allowing for Rick Scott to deny climate change to to really ignore the water quality needs of the state to an nth degree 
And then we were also asked during that time to not push back on Rick Scott, to not create fireworks. The foundation stopped funding Sierra and another group in 2018 after they fought to have the trust fund money used only to buy conservation land. To Van Lint, the fight over the reservoir came down to a fundamental flaw with restoration. Putting politics over science meant doing more with less and treating compromises as victories. We have to get all of that on one one little footprint, and we have to meet water quality standards. That makes it very problematic. And so um, what they decided to do was make it really deep, from the Corps' perspective, especially if you're a Corps engineer, post-Katrina, you get very worried about big amounts of water just sitting on a landscape held in by a levee in Category 5 hurricane direct hit. So, big concern. And the other was um, the Department of the Interior modeling, our modeling kind of showed it's probably this reservoir, as planned, might is li- not likely to meet water quality standards, 13 parts per billion. The state disagreed. So, what do you do? <laughs> so the Corps' solution was they signed that agreement. We're not going to use it until you meet water quality standards. And that exists today. What that means is the reservoir, marketed as the crown jewel of the DeSantis administration, won't work unless the state succeeds at cleaning water. And that's something the National Academies of Sciences have said it's unlikely to do. But you didn't hear that in press conferences celebrating the reservoir. You didn't hear it from the Water Management District. You just heard it was the crown jewel. And this was something that Van Lint wasn't going to go along with. What the district argued is that they don't need a very big STA for this new lake water and reservoir. They'll find efficiencies in in the existing STAs. But remember, we visited the STAs, those stormwater treatment areas built to clean pollution around the sugarcane fields. And the guys who run those say they're basically maxed out. And I think what the National Academy report kind of says, well, what are you talking about? You're not meeting <laughs> the water quality standards now. How are you going to get even more out of them? So this is what Van Lint thinks the Everglades Foundation doesn't want him talking about. If you're limited in this footprint, we're going to be facing a reckoning because we can't meet expectations. I think the estuary people have expectations. Florida Bay people have expectations. And certainly my expectations are that's, that's the way forward is put the Everglades back, add more water, wet season and dry. And um, you can't do that without storage. A year after the Everglades Foundation sued, the judge found Tom Van Lint guilty of criminal contempt. The judge said Van Lint violated the injunction order forbidding him from deleting or downloading any information. Van Lint didn't think it applied to his personal information, but it did. Five months later, the judge ordered Van Lint to pay the foundation's legal fees, which total $178,000. What they... What they claim is I deleted 700,000 files. And of those, 4,000 were files that I had deleted. I deleted them by accident, but I had already turned them over. They had them. But they just claimed that the act of deleting files that they've already had 
or that were my personal files was a violation of the court order, which was explicit. You can touch nothing. And I find that to be just astonishing that I, I was compelled by the court under threat of jail to turn over all of my personal items to the Blades Foundation, all my banking records, income tax, health records, whatever it might be, uh, because of an alleged violation of an employee manual. It is, it is outrageous. He says the information the foundation claims it owns and that he deleted came from public sources. He used models created by the Water Management District and plugged in data from public data sets. We got literal identical copies of the operating system and all the models from, let's say, the Water Management District and installed those on our computers and then exchanged all the files with the Water Management District. So it's an outrageous claim that all the models are theirs, but they've also never said I never claimed I took anything from them, any of those models. They just claim that they belong to the Everglades Foundation, and they were worried that I might have taken some of these models. The foundation also said he downloaded a board directory marked confidential, Van Lent says he did it to get Eichenberg's address, but deleted it from his computer before the injunction was issued. I asked Van Lent why he kept working for the foundation after that fight with Eichenberg and after he got sidelined as the chief science officer. It was very difficult. And for one thing, I kept working because um, I, I spent a good part of my career trying to make the Everglades Foundation into a credible voice for science. And uh, so, of course, when I thought it was going to be hijacked, I did my best to work on the inside to fix that. I was unsuccessful. So I left. I stepped down from a leadership role and let him pick someone who would be more full-throated and in carrying the messaging over modeling was a a common uh, (laughs) refrain and uh, let them go on the new path. And I would go I would go a different direction. But I'm, I've spent my whole career working at Everglades Restoration. I'm not going to stop now. Van Lynn is set to be sentenced on the criminal charge for contempt of court next week. He's appealing the case. The foundation, meanwhile, has already hired a new chief scientist. And as for that controversial smaller reservoir, Florida and the Army Corps are moving ahead with it. They now expect to finish it by 2029. We're going to talk more about the ugly side of politics and how it shaped Everglades restoration in the last episode. But first, we want to look at progress when we take a trip to the remotest part of the Everglades, down Shark River. If we can fix the Everglades, we can show to the world that it's possible to solve majorly complex problems. I mean, we have so much responsibility to fix this ecosystem, not just for South Florida, but for the whole world. What's the difference between celebrating small achievements and losing sight of the big picture? That's next time. Bright Lit Place is a WLRN news podcast distributed by the NPR Network. It was reported by me, Jenny Stiletovich, and edited by Rowan Moore-Garrity. Merritt Jacob is our sound engineer and composed our original music. Check out our website, 
brightlitplace.org to see photography from Patrick Farrell and web design from Laura Kurtzberg and Kai Wilson. WLRN's Director of Enterprise Journalism, Jessica Bakeman, helped with editing and production. KQED's Dana Cronin helped find archival tape. Special thanks to Vice President for News Sergio Bustos and the whole team at WLRN News. This podcast is part of the Pulitzer Center's nationwide Connected Coastlines Reporting Initiative. For more information, go to pulitzercenter.org slash connectedcoastlines. If you enjoyed Bright Lit Place and want to support more local journalism like it, please consider donating to WLRN. Hit the donate button at WLRN.org. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the NPR Wine Club. NPR Wine Club members have contributed over $1.5 million to helping create a more informed public. B21. Join the charge at nprwineclub.org podcast. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news. Some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning wherever you get your podcasts.